The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In economic news, the Federal Reserve is trying to bring down inflation with interest rate increases despite the risk of a possible recession. However, the thing that the Fed is worried about the most is a psychological shift in consumers that could sustain high inflation. If consumers suspect prices will remain high in the future, it changes the way they behave today, and the toughest calls for the Fed still lie ahead once the economy contracts and unemployment rises. For more on how inflation psychology is stoking more anxiety at the Fed, we'll speak to Nick Timorose, chief economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. The challenge for the Fed here is that the economy has been hit by a series of shocks, and a monetary policy or central banking 101 textbook would say when you get hit with a shock, If you think it's going to have an endpoint at some point relatively soon, then you don't have to react to that. And so last year when the economy was reopening and we had a big increase in inflation, that's exactly what the Fed concluded. They said, well, this seems likely to be temporary, and so we don't need to react to it. And then it turned out later in the year that inflation was staying higher for longer than they had anticipated, so they began to raise interest rates. And the concern here is that now you've had several more shocks. You've had energy prices skyrocket because of the war in Ukraine. And even though each of these things might resolve on its own, the Fed is very worried that inflation will stay high if consumers and businesses expect prices to stay high. These are called inflation expectations. They're something that the Fed watches very carefully because their models suggest that if people expect prices to be higher in the future, then prices actually will be higher in the future. And so the issue here is they want to prevent this sort of self-sustaining or self-fulfilling psychology from taking root, because that's what happened in the 1970s when we had high inflation and it required a very wrenching series of recessions in the early 1980s to actually break the back of high inflation. One of the experts you spoke to from the Hoover Institution put it pretty great, an easy way to understand. Let's say you're a landlord and you knew prices were going to be going up. So what you're going to do is adjust and you're going to demand higher rent right now. And that's the whole thing. We're raising prices on our own, even even, uh, you know, uh, just on that expectation. So whatever we think is going to happen in the future is 
determining how we behave right now. And that's the whole thing. That's the psychology that they're trying to battle. And, you know, the Fed has already said, hey, well, we know that there's a big possibility of a recession. And they're kind of accepting some of that responsibility if it does happen. But that's the other side of things, right? A lot of people can lose their jobs. You know, a lot of stuff's going to happen. So it really seems like we've already adjusted to that point. You know, is it too late by now? Well, hopefully it's not too late. I guess we're going to find out. But you're right. I mean, the Fed is raising interest rates at quite large intervals, a half point increase in May, a three quarters of a percentage point increase in June. They're raising rates at the most uh, rapid pace since the 1980s. And part of that's because we went into this with interest rates at very low levels. And part of that is because they want to make sure that they get this early if there is an inflation problem. And so when you raise rates really rapidly like this, you know, it takes time for that to influence the economy. You're not going to see it right away. And there's a risk that you're going to overdo it. It's a little bit like driving forward, but using the rearview mirror to tell you whether you've gone too far. If you drive with the rearview mirror, you're going to hit something before you, you see it. And so they're willing to run that risk. They're willing to run the risk of creating a recession here because they see the other risks of a period of entrenched high prices as something even more unacceptable to them, something that would be even more painful for the economy than a recession, which, of course, can be very painful. And you made mention in the article, too, right? Some of the toughest calls that Jerome Powell is going to have to make in all of this still really comes ahead in the future once the economy does start contracting, once unemployment rises. And we're seeing some of those effects already, right? You know, companies announcing hiring freezes. They're laying some people off already. So really, a lot of the tougher calls still haven't even happened yet. Yeah, that's right. This is the low-hanging fruit. It's easy to raise interest rates and sound very aggressive about doing so when the economy is very strong the way it was last year and maybe earlier this year. But once the economy is clearly slowing down, the problem the Fed and Jay Powell, they're going to face is this. In the 1970s, the Fed actually raised interest rates a lot. There was a big recession after the 1973 oil shock, the recession of 1974-75, and the Fed cut interest rates in 1975 But inflation, even though it came down from around 10 percent to 6 percent, it was still high at 6 percent. And so one of the conclusions that a lot of economists have taken from that is that the Fed didn't actually get inflation out of the economy because they eased too soon as the economy went into a recession. So that's going to be there are going to be people here once the economy slows saying, Fed, don't back off because you really want to make sure you know, you slay the inflation dragon here and you might have to stay tighter with higher interest rates than the Fed would have, you know, a few years ago when inflation wasn't a problem and the and the economy was slowing. And so that's going to be really difficult because we haven't lived through this kind of environment in more than 40 years. And as a consumer, what are we to do? How do we break this psychological impact, right? We've been already told uh, high inflation prices are going to persist probably throughout the rest of the year. Hopefully they can ease after that. But what is a consumer to do in the meantime? Well, you know, a lot of this does depend on what consumers do with their economic decisions. One possibility here is that spending slows down because inflation is taking a bigger bite out of our incomes. And so people aren't going to be able to spend as much. But it's also possible that there's been a big buffer that households have accrued from saving money during the pandemic when people maybe weren't spending as much 
and from, you know, wage growth that's been fairly strong over the last year. And so if that buffer allows consumers to continue spending in the face of still high prices, then that means the Fed might actually have to raise interest rates even more to slow down demand and to bring inflation down. The other question is what happens to the supply of goods and services. You know, the Fed can control demand. They can reduce demand, but they can't really address inflation by improving the supply of gas, the supply of housing. And so if prices are rising because of those supply bottlenecks and those supply bottlenecks don't resolve, then that just means the Fed has to destroy even more demand. And that'll be painful. That that will be a recession. Nick. Timorose, Chief Economics Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal and author of Trillion Dollar Triage. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. For all those deal hunters out there, where have all the coupons gone? As record high inflation is still hitting us, many are looking for these deals anywhere they can, but paper coupons and even digital ones are harder to come by. Circulation is down and redemption rates have also plummeted as people just don't have time to sort them all out, and smartphones have made other shopping incentives possible. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Lydia DePillis, economy reporter at the New York Times. Brands have a lot of different ways in which they try to get consumers to try things that they might not otherwise have bought. And for a long time, they relied on paper coupons that went out with almost every newspaper in America when newspapers in physical form were the main way that people consumed news. And so there's a lot of things going on. So these were distributed in the hundreds of billions in the 1980s and 1990s. And many people remember their parents clipping them and taking them to the store and getting a few bucks off on toothpaste or cereal or whatever. So that started to decline, both in the numbers of coupons distributed and in the share of those coupons that were being redeemed. And that's the result of several factors. Just to put some quick numbers on it, in 2021, there's estimates that we had 168 billion circulated coupons uh, across both print and digital formats. But in 2015, just a few years ago, that was 294 billion. So, I mean, that's <laughs> a, a big, big drop. And to your point about redemption rates, 0.5% of all print and digital coupons were redeemed in 2020. So people just aren't using them. And you're going to go just get into a list of why people aren't using them. Time, time to do all the research and get them. That's one of the biggest things. I do think that's one of the biggest things. You know, another thing that happened between the 1980s and today is the rise of two earner households, right? More parents are working both at once. And so it's something that, that takes time to do is and keep track of all those coupons and also go to the different stores where different sales might be happening. So in that sense, we are sort of less price sensitive in that we're less willing to spend time to save money because the value of our time has increased, like more people can spend time working. But the other thing is that as computers became a dominant form of communication and then smartphones, brands discovered that they could use these promotions in a more sophisticated way if they could track their spending habits. And so there's all different kinds of incentives they could offer other than sort of the form of a coupon, which is, in essence, a discount offered when you check out, right? But what if they could do rewards for simply spending at the store or rebates later if you you know, take a picture of your receipt and send it to a vendor? So what I've heard is that the absolute 
amount that retailers and brands are spending on promotions has remained fairly steady, but it's been diversified across a, a number of different kinds of Senate. Yeah, it's not the same old model. Uh, you know, a bunch of people that you spoke to that have been in the coupon game for a long time, they're a little sad about how things have changed and they, and they see it coming, right? They know it's a dying model already. Still, a lot of, uh, you know, old school couponers just like to do it the old fashioned way. And, you know, you had a, a quick little history, too, of how coupons came to be, you know, really starting in the 70s uh, and, and peaking in 1999 at 340 billion coupons in newspaper circulation, leading all the way to the TV show, Extreme Couponing. I loved that show. And, and you know, but when you looked at those people that were doing that, it was a full-time job that, for them. They were spending eight hours a day, eight hours a day just cataloging everything and getting ready for those big buys. But everything's just changed as, as we've been talking about. Yeah, well, so the recession was an interesting time and in that it was a sort of temporary re- reversal of these long-term trends. People really did use coupons more. And I think that show popularized the idea that you could get stuff for almost free, but almost nobody has that kind of time. And there <laughs> right. still are coupon bloggers and video bloggers who who show really pretty ingenious ways of doing this. And it's become more complicated, right? Like there's all other you know, Shopkick and Ibotta. There's all different kinds of ways to get money back on your on your purchases. But others will tell you, more practical couponers will tell you that sometimes that just leads to overbuying. You buy things that you don't need because just because there's a discount. So and, um, and that's you might what, not and always... That's what, and that's exactly what retailers and manufacturers want to do. That's the model of the coupon exactly. and bring you in and buy right. other stuff. And, you know, at the same time, why we're not seeing as many deals, you, you know, you did mention that some of the money is still kind of the same. It's being allocated different ways, but the margins are so much thinner, especially going through what we saw with supply chain issues and whatnot. The margins are so uh, thin on some of these coupons for the manufacturers. That's continuing why the model doesn't work as effectively anymore. Yeah, right. So uh, with the rise of e-commerce, there was a lot of competition for grocery stores and convenience stores. So they were already offering fairly competitive rates. And so to give a discount on top of that was a little bit more than they could swallow. Um, And the pandemic made all of this worse because from a retailer or a manufacturer's perspective, they couldn't even keep their shelves full. So it's not like they were having trouble selling out of their inventory. So they didn't want to add incentives on top of that. So that's why, and this is something that many couponers notice, the supply just really fell dramatically and it wasn't made up for by the digital coupons. You know, I think that brands really want to make digital coupons happen, but it's only a small slice of people that's actually using them at this point. I think that adoption may rise, but it is something that you have to figure out how to do pretty proactively. Lydia DePillis, economy reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm happy. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. 
Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Finally for this week, with all of our data constantly in jeopardy, you might want to consider scrubbing your info from the internet. Well, the bad news is that you'll never fully be able to delete everything online, but you can minimize some of the risk. More bad news, it's going to take time, money, and patience. For more on what to know about deleting your data, we'll speak to Heather Kelly, tech reporter at the Washington Post. There's basically a ton of ways to try and get yourself on the internet. That's the good news. There are forms you can fill out, requests you can like give to these companies. The bad news, it'll probably be like a full-time job if you're to be really efficient at it. Yeah, I mean, you, there's a lot of time, money, patience that you need to go through. It also helps to be in a place that has really good protections, privacy protections for people. So you suggested starting off with Google. I mean, it's the number one search engine. Everybody goes to it. Everybody uses it. And uh, you suggest with starting off with just kind of a simple Google search for your name. Exactly. And like, we won't pretend like we don't all do this anyways, but you you really want to search for yourself and see what's out there. And what you're considering in this situation isn't like what ad companies know about me or what law enforcement can find out. This is really what other normal people might be able to find if they had some time and wanted to look me up on the internet, maybe harass me. So search for yourself, search for your name plus your address, your name plus your cell number, your name plus any sensitive information and see if there's any hits for that. And those are the things you're going to want to focus on trying to remove from Google. And they have a whole new form to do it on. Just a quick story. There was somebody knocking on our front door recently, trying to get in contact with somebody. Nothing happened. They left. Nobody was home. We can just see them on our ring camera. And then a couple hours later, my wife received a phone call from the person that was at our front door at that one time saying, oh, I lost my cell phone and the GPS shows it's there. But we're like, how did they get our information? All of a sudden we went and started doing the Google search for my wife's name and everything. And her phone number was up there. Address was up there. Emails were up there. Associated peoples were up there. We're like, whoa, how did all of this come about? What do you do for some of those websites that are kind of like, not necessarily LinkedIn specifically, but those types of things, those kind of public records websites? So what's really frustrating about this is that you can remove things from there. They all have request forms you can fill out, but they're constantly being repopulated. And it's something you almost have to do at least once a year to really keep yourself off the Internet. And then for the public sites, you know, like places that show you you sold your house, you bought a house. Those are picked up by data aggregators and these Spokio kind of weird search somebody you know from high school sites yeah, yeah, and exactly it just replicates it's like a, a a star trek episode with the trebles it's just tribbles tribbles and they're just it's going <laughs> to be everywhere it's going to be really hard to get rid of that information unless you're really on top of it well so as you said as you mentioned google has a form you can ask to request uh, certain information be taken down another thing you can do is opt out of sharing your data in a bunch of different places too Opting out is really going to be most useful for these really big data collection companies. You've got Experian, Equifax, Epsilon Data Management. You've heard of some of their names, maybe not all of them. You can find a list at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Problem is there's going to be hundreds of them, but like pick the biggest ones, start there. And again, like we mentioned earlier, it's really easier if you live someplace that's kind of looking out for your privacy rights. That's going to be the European Union. 
and California right now. There are some other states with things in the works or a few smaller privacy regulations, but those are the real places where you can make a difference. Yeah, California has the California Consumer Privacy Act, so you can tell companies, hey, you know, I want you to uh, delete my data, and then they're required to go and through that. You have to submit request forms for all that, but, you know, that's the steps you got to take there. You also mentioned limit what you put online. Now, that one's so tough, right? I mean, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, if you're anything doing anything on social media, you're putting your data out there. Anytime you download an app and you want to use, you know, a fun new app or even a banking, anything, you're always giving up some of your personal information by doing so. It's interesting you mentioned apps. I feel like we're really excited about smartphones still. And we have these app stores, unlimited, cool-looking apps. Trust very few of them. You don't know who made them most of the time. You don't read the privacy policy. Nobody does. It's fine. You don't know what they're doing with your information. And so I think people, one really important step is to be way more cautious when you're picking out the apps you want on your phone. And one easy thing you can do is if you have a new app and it says share contacts, say no, just say no. There'll be other ways to use it. Even if it's TikTok, you can use TikTok without giving it your contacts. Just say no. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So, I mean, all of this is to say that it's super tough to really scrub yourself from the internet. I mean, you almost have to like never be on there just to begin with. One of the last things that you suggest as another option is use a third party service. Now these are going to cost you money. They're usually kind of subscription based. I mean, in some ways you're like, is this a scam? Are they the ones also putting our information out there and then charging it to take us back down? But there are a few legitimate services out there. Delete Me is one of the most reputable ones. I actually use it myself. And they constantly comb through all these data brokers, through all these websites. And the company's also honest that like, even they can't get everything. Even a paid team of professional data deleters can't get everything about you off the internet. But this is important if you're concerned about harassment if you're you know, coming out of, of an abusive relationship, any reasons like that, it might be worth it to sign up even for a year or two just to try and really minimize what's out there about you on the internet. Heather Kelly, tech reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.